Good morning. Um, my name is Ed, and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. The first passage is from Luke 24, verse 13 to 24. And the passage begins with two disciples discussing startling reports that some of their women saw angels early that morning and that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Uh, the second reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. You, re- you may remember that after the contest of Baal and God to burn up the Sodom you, of you may remember that after the contest of Baal and God to burn up the sodden sacrifices, Elijah slaughters all the prophets of Baal. Here we read King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, vowing to take revenge for what Elijah had done, forcing him to flee for his life. Verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, 
for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and they are now trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to bow, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Morning, I'm John, and I want to thank Ed for giving a brief recap before that uh, reading out of 1 Kings 19. Uh, It's been, I think, two months since I was with you last as we've been journeying through uh, the story of Elijah. I was unable to be with you last month because I was uh, not well and uh, I think I rang on Friday afternoon and said, I don't know if I'm going to make it on Sunday and Ed was kind enough to organise someone to fill in for me. So it's good to have that recap because, uh, yep, there was those sodden sacrifices that Elijah had challenged all the prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel to prove who was God, to show whether Baal was God or whether the Lord was God. And after God had sent down fire from heaven and consumed that sodden sacrifice, this is where we then come in to chapter 19. Let's pray. Our Father, the story of Elijah occurred many, many years ago, thousands of years, Father. And yet, even though he's dead, yet still he speaks. Father, we pray that through your word today, you will speak to us of a truth that can reach into our own hearts, that we might have our lives shaped by you, that, our Father, we might follow you 
all the days of our life. Amen. Ten-year-old Phineas was awake well before the sun. He'd scarcely slept that night, and long before a sound was heard, he was downstairs with his bag packed, ready to climb into the wagon. The year was 1820, and Phineas was about to see an island. Not just any island, his island. The island that had been promised to him at birth. The day that he was born, his grandfather presented newborn Phineas with a deed to a sizable portion of Connecticut land, a place called Ivy Island. And today, for the first time, Phineas was to see it. Not every boy is born a landowner. Phineas's parents were always quick to remind their son of this, urging him not to forget them when he came of age. And while other children dreamed of of dragons and knights, his fantasies were of Ivy Island, his own island, his very own domain. He'd build a house. He'd start a farm. He'd, He'd raise cattle. He'd rule over his island. When you own an island, you feel important. When you own an island... You want to see it. And Phineas, at 10 years old, had yet to see his own island. He'd long pleaded with his father to take him, but it was a long journey. And finally, in the summer of 1820, his father agreed. Phineas could scarcely sit still in that wagon for that long three-day journey. At the top of every hill, he would ask, Are we there yet? Can we see it? Finally... His dad stopped the wagon and pointed north into a field to a row of tall trees. There, Ivy Island beyond those trees. Phineas was overcome. He jumped out of the wagon. He dashed into a gap between the trees to glimpse Ivy Island for the first time, his own island. And when he saw the land, his heart stopped. He was gutted. Ivy Island was a swamp, five acres of snake-infested marshes. His grandfather had boasted that it was the most valuable land in Connecticut, but it was worthless. His father had called it a generous gift. It wasn't. It was a joke. A cruel, cruel joke played on a young boy. A stunned Phineas stared at the swamp. His father roared with laughter. Phineas was not a favoured grandson. He was the laughing stock of his whole family. Grandfather Taylor had played a joke. But Phineas didn't laugh, and he never forgot. That disappointment of that day in the ten-year-old shaped the rest of his life. He that deceived made a lifestyle out of deception. The little boy fooled, made a career out of fooling others. He might have even fooled you. 
You don't know him by the name of Phineas. You don't know him as a landowner. But I'm sure you do know him as a famous showman, a promoter, a circus master. You'll know him as the one who coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. And he spent his life proving it. Such was the life of P.T. Barnum. And such is the life of many others. Many others who have been told that they'd be taken to the promised land only to find themselves taken to a swamp. We're talking disappointment. Deep, deep disappointment that scars the soul. We're talking being seriously let down. We're talking 1 Kings 19. We're talking Elijah. Straight after he had championed God's cause at Mount Carmel. Look at what happens. Elijah alone had stood against 450 prophets of Baal. He called out to them as they, as they danced around their altar. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's off on a holiday. Maybe he's deaf. Just shout louder. Nothing happened. And then when it was his turn, with one prayer, the Lord God showed that he is the Lord. And the bull, the stone altar, the moat of water, that, that sodden sacrifice is vaporised in total by fire from heaven before their very eyes. And the people say, the Lord, he is God. But you turn the chapter and within a few hours of all of this, Elijah's world has come tumbled in on him. God's let him down. God's played a cruel joke on him, or so it seems. It's okay for God to turn on the fireworks for the whole nation, but where is God when I need him? It's okay for me to go out on a limb at Mount Carmel for the Lord, but when I need a bit of protection, God's sitting on his hands. For here's this murderous Queen Jezebel putting out a contract on my life. And God's not done anything to stop her. You don't have to read between the lines of the Bible here. Elijah thought that God had failed him. No question about it. After hearing Jezebel's threats, threats that in those days were, were royal promises, verse 3 of chapter 19 tells us, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He took matters into his own hands. He'd expected God to protect him. But where was God? He wasn't going to take another risk and, and hang around to let God fail him a second time. This is serious stuff. His life is on the line. Disappointment does that to us. It's a common reaction, isn't it, for us? 
been hurt by love? Then protect yourself. Don't love. Had some promise broken and breached and violated? Then protect yourself. Don't trust. Like P.T. Barnum, don't get caught again. Don't be the sucker. Harden your heart. Cover up. Protect. Elijah had an unfulfilled expectation. God didn't do what Elijah wanted God to do. Elijah was a mighty man of God. He had a good heart, a sincere, solid heart. But in this episode in chapter 19, we see a heart disappointed, let down. And that's all because of wrong expectations. One of the joys about living near my grandchildren is that I get called upon regularly to take the kids off to some appointment. It might be early in the day, it might be the middle of the day or whatever else, we'll take them off the appointment. And we know that once we pick them up on the way back, they'll say to us, oh, John Pa, do we, do we have to go to school now? We all know what it's like when that, that six-year-old or that six or nine-year-old or even the 13-year-old in my case says, oh, it won't matter if I just miss the last periods of school. Just, just, can't I just go home to your place and play Xbox? To, to, to them, it makes perfect sense. Stay home all day, do what you want, watch TV, raid the fridge, you know, ask for food, you know. Why wait until you retire for all that opportunity for happiness? We hear those sorts of requests, though, but we don't do it. Why not? Well, I don't want to incur the wrath of my daughter. Why not? Because we know better. The fact is that as a a grandparent, as a parent, as an adult, we know more about life than our youngsters. And the point is... God knows more about life than we do. The people under Moses, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Give us the leeks and the garlics. But God knew better. He wanted to lead them into the promised land. The people in Jesus' day wanted Jesus to liberate them from the oppression of the Roman rule. But God knew better. He wanted to liberate them from the oppression of sin and death. The woman at the well in John's Gospel wanted a spring of water so that she wouldn't have to take that long, painful trek every day with her heavy jug to gather water. But God knew better. He wanted to give her the living water of eternal life. The crowd who followed Jesus around the lake wanted their bellies filled. But God knew better. He wanted to fill their souls with the life-giving bread of heaven. God regularly says no. He says no to what they wanted. And yes, to what he knew they needed. Let's work that through a bit and ask, 
Are we glad when God says no to what we want and yes to what we need? Are we? I think the honest answer is probably not. And certainly not always. And certainly not usually immediately. If we want life to be free of hassles and all our problems solved and and everything runs smoothly, that's what we want. But we hear God saying to us, run. Run with perseverance, the, the race marked out for you. And we look at our lives and we think, that's not a race. That's an obstacle course. That's a steeplechase. That's running through no man's land filled with mines. And he says, that's the way to go. And we aren't overjoyed at that prospect. We want healing. And God says to us, learn through your pain. And it's hard at that point to respond with gladness. If we're struggling financially and we, we, we just we want more money, we want greater material security, and God says to us, your treasure is in heaven. We will often acquiesce, but we may not be happy. When God doesn't do what we want, it's not easy. Never has been, never will be. It wasn't for Elijah. It won't be for us. When God doesn't come through for you just as you want him to, then you, Elijah, and me, we all share the same pair of sandals. Unmet expectations will result in disappointment. And like Elijah, you, you probably won't tell God that in your eyes he's let you down. You probably won't cry it out to the heavens. You, you won't give voice to that pain within you. You won't be really willing to say, God, you have failed me. God, you didn't look after me as I wanted. For how can we dare say such a thing? It runs against all our theology up here, even though our theology down here feels it so deeply. The very words themselves like that threaten to crush us. It's like telling your parents at some point that they, that they failed to love you, they failed to protect you. And this is much bigger. This is to the God of the universe. This is to your heavenly Father. This is God that you'd be complaining against. This is be God that you'd be, you'd be exposing all of your disappointments and hurts that he's caused. And so we don't give voice to it. We hide it within, or at least we think we bury our wounds some way deep in a closet somewhere that no one can see, not even God. But our attitude will show. It'll percolate to the surface in our actions. And here in Elijah, it showed by him running away for his life. I'm afraid. I'm scared. It meant putting as many sand dunes between himself and Jezebel's henchmen. 
Why? Because God hadn't silenced Jezebel. God hadn't done her in in some way. God hadn't protected Elijah as he expected God would do. For after all, God, I'm your champion prophet. I alone have stood against all these other false prophets. I alone have been the one on the white horse promoting your cause. Maintaining truth. Calling out what has been wrong. God had let him down. It was unfair after all that Elijah had done for God. Possibly you're sitting there thinking, well, Elijah just simply at this point wasn't trusting God. And you're right. You're absolutely right. Faith in part is the conviction that God knows more than we do about this life and that he will always get us through. And when Jezebel let loose her poisonous tongue, it exposed a flaw in Elijah's faith in God. And when we're faced with a situation or an encounter or a challenge and we we run away, sometimes we do it physically to avoid it, Sometimes we run away in other fashions. We, we take matters into our own hands or, or we ignore the matter. We pretend it isn't there. Maybe, maybe what we're scared of isn't the event itself, but being faced with the horrible, ugly realisation that, that, that in the midst of this hardship, we don't truly trust God to know what he's doing, that we are not fully convinced that he will get us through. And when we find ourselves there, who do we trust? Well, instead, we trust ourselves. We trust our our cunning, our wisdom, our our strength, our our fleet foot, our our smart thinking, our, our ability to somehow manipulate the situation. Remember these Israelites back in Elijah's day? They'd made the idol Baal their god. But when we trust ourself, who are you setting up as God? You don't need to transgress the first and second commandments, but at the same time, you have become your own idol. You've assumed the place that rightfully belongs to the Lord God alone. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And do not lean on your own understanding. That verse is about idolatry. That verse is about putting yourself in the place of God alone. So if the cause of disappointment is wrong expectations, a wrong expectation about what God is going to do for you, a wrong expectation of who God is, The cure of disappointment is to restructure those expectations. There's a story of a a bloke who goes into a pet shop. He's he's living alone. He's a single guy. It's very, very quiet at home. and, um, And he goes in to buy a singing canary. He doesn't want his house to be too quiet. And the shopkeeper has just the bird for him. 
And so he buys it, he takes it home. And the next day when he returns from work, the house is full of beautiful music as this canary is just echoing out tune after tune. It's wonderful. The man's got a smile from ear to ear and he goes over to the cage to feed the canary. And for the first time, he notices that the canary has only one leg. I've been sold a one-legged canary. Terrible. Oh, I won't have this. Packs it up in his little cage, takes back to the shop, and he tears strips off the pet shop owner, complains loudly. And after a while, the pet shop owner just listens to him and he leans over the counter and says, so tell me, he said, what's better, a canary who can sing or a canary who can dance? That's a great sort of a question in times of disappointment. Do you want a God who gives you what you want or a God who gives you what he knows is best? Or to put it another way, who's best equipped to know what to do in this messed up, crazy world? Is it God or is it us? When Elijah showed by what he did that his expectations of God were wrong, God went about restructuring Elijah's expectations. And I want you to look with me in uh, 1 Kings 19 at the real heavy-handed way that God treats Elijah, this, this prophet of his who's ran away and who's been afraid by Jezebel's murderous threats. Do you see there in 1 Kings 19 how God takes Elijah by the scruff of the neck and belts the truth into him? Do you notice how, how God force feeds a scroll of Moses down his throat? Do you see how God is, is so annoyed that Elijah could have such an attitude that he's ready to chuck Elijah onto the scrap heap as an abysmal failure, have nothing to do with him again? Did you notice those things in the reading that Ed gave? Of course not, because they're not there. And that surprises me, and it proves that, that God's vastly different than I am. What would my reaction be to someone who did those sorts of things to me? Instead, Elijah, how's he treated by God? God takes his servant Elijah and he restructures his expectations, his view of God. And he does it with such majestic tenderness and kindness and grace. You see, God's character is not under any threat except in the mind of Elijah. And God moves then so gently to refocus, reassure, reshape, restructure Elijah's view of God. God doesn't grab Elijah by the scruff of the neck when he steps out of line. What does he do? He sends an angel to touch Elijah, to stir him very gently from his sleep. And then he doesn't ram anything down his throat. But he calls upon Elijah to eat and drink a meal that the Lord had prepared for him. He does this not once, but twice. God loves Elijah greatly. 
and he loves Elijah gently. And rather than discard Elijah because he's failed, God does for Elijah what we all need when we are disappointed. God God reminds Elijah that he is still in control. He goes into that cave in Mount Horeb and there, as he's sheltered in that cage, God shatters the rock with a wind. And from the deep, an earthquake rumbles up at God's order. And at the wave of his hand, a fireball scorches all in its path. But Elijah, Elijah, it's not just those cosmic spectacles that I command. Yes, I can burn up a bull on Mount Carmel. But Elijah, what of the gentle whisper of the breath that goes unnoticed? I, Elijah, I am the Lord of all. From the knock them dead firestorm, all the way through to the insignificant sigh. Elijah, Jezebel may plot and threaten, but Elijah, there's only one thing that you need to remember. I am the Lord. I am God. I am in control of all things. Do you notice that God doesn't tell Elijah what he's going to do about Jezebel? And when we're in the midst of despair and disappointment and hardship and we can't see their way out, God doesn't tell us what he's going to do about all the hurdles that are in front of us either. But what he does is to show us again who he is. He brings us back to a true vision of him, a true picture of him. And in this way, he reconstructs our expectations and he cures our disappointments. He is the Lord. He knows more about this life than we do. And the Jezebels that threaten you, those Jezebels are not the Lord. And you trying to save your own skin, you are not the Lord. We need to hear that life's mishaps and tragedies are not a reason to give up, but rather they're a reason to hold on tight to the truths that we know in here, but sometimes find it hard to play out in here. Corrie Tem Boom had a saying that went like this. When the train goes through the tunnel and the world gets dark, do you jump out of the train? Of course not. You sit in your seat and trust the train driver will get you through. Why did God take Elijah up onto that mountain into his presence? So that Elijah would know again that God is in control of the train. And you've been on that mountain in your own times of despair and hardship and anguish. You've been on that mountain sweating, 
standing where Elijah stood. And you've seen and you know the God who is in control. And in that space you know that you can, you can lay your disappointments to rest. For from that very moment on, you can be reaffirmed of who God is. That he's the one who knows best. That he will get you through. And just as Elijah said to the Israelites at the start of all of his episodes, so it is that I can say to my fellow Elijahs, when we've got hearts that are disappointed, since the Lord is God, follow him. Let's pray. Our Father, it is a deep privilege, even in our disappointments, to be able to call on you as our Father. When our Lord God, things around us have fallen apart and our hearts are broken, And our dreams have been shattered. And our expectations, our Lord, have not been realised. To know that, that even in the midst of that, you still come beside us and call us to look in your face and to know you're fresh. As the God of mercy, as the God of love, as the God of all comfort, as the God of kindness and patience, as the God who calls us to look to the cross and see there, our Father, that you have righted all wrongs, all injustices, and to see that the cross is the very centre of life indeed. Father, help us when we're challenged by disappointment and we're hurt and let down by those who've abandoned us and have broken promises to us. Not to put our trust in ourselves as to how we'll fix all this up to lean on you and to continue to honour you as our God. And as Elijah said, since the Lord is God, follow him. We pray this in your name. Amen.